It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. This is your host, Stan Dryav, and my co-host, the BMF title to my Islam Makhachev, Nick John Bracha the third. It is good to be on with your brother to break down UFC 291, man. Yeah, it's been a minute. Thanks for holding down the fort, seeing as that I'm the champion of seven and a half points. I had some uh, had some tours to do, some open some car dealerships, some personal appearances, and it was good <laughs> that you were able to, you know, keep this going like it's your day job because, you know, it is. And while you're making those commercials with those father and son car dealership owners, I am over here working away, Nick, toiling in my craft and, and only getting sharper. Well, I'm just going to outpick you again. I'm going to jab, jab, boom. So you're just going to do the uh, Sean Strickland on me? Just, just lots of straight, just lots of straight punches. Just going to pitter patter and hope for the best. Yeah, totally. I'm going to, I'm going to pitter patter while saying things that are completely un PC. Um, Sounds about right. Uneducated while owning it. Oh, so really, you're just going to be yourself, except now you're going to actually throw oh, punches. Not, Fair. Wow. Fair. Good job. <laughs> Uh, so man, yeah, let's let's quickly touch on and we're gonna break uh, get into UFC 291 and and it looks like a pretty overall stellar card with a bunch of names that we're familiar with, which is really all we can ask for at this point in time. A headline by Poirier versus Gaethje too. It's not nearly the best of the year, no no legitimate title on the line, but still definitely some stuff worth diving into. And we had UFC Fight Night Aspinall versus Tybura from last week, and Tom Aspinall once again looks like a killer. It's it's a little bit of a weird match. Right matchup because Tybura basically came off of this. Ser- I'm sorry, Aspinall came off of this serious knee injury. Came off of this, you know, weird loss to Curtis Blades where he basically fell down at some point after throwing a kick, and you know he's coming off of a win over Volkov prior to that where he dominated Alexander Volkov, who largely dominated Marcin Tybura. So it's not exactly the kind of win that'll bring you much closer. It just kind of resets him back to where he was prior to the Curtis Blades matchup. But the fact that he got that big win in London, and all the hoopla around it. And the fact that it was a decent overall card compared to some of the prior ones, I think certainly puts him on a trajectory for the title. And I think, realistically, he's probably one win away. And given the strengths that we've seen so far, how do you think he's going to do against John Jones? I, I mean, I think potentially pretty good. Listen, he, like like John Jones, he is, he fight, he fights mean. He is a finisher. He throws to hurt you. He gets positions to choke you. Um, I'd like to see him, and I think he would like to get you know another another fight or two. But I think he's a. I think you know, I think he's a credible threat. Um, I think he's. I think that's a that's a you know that's a fight I want to see. He's just he's still a bit young in the game. I'd like to see him fight a longer fight. Um, but I think he's one or two away from being. In a, you know, in a really good position. The question is, is when he's ready, is John Jones going to be there? If John yeah, Jones walks after, like, you know, John Jones fighting, like, Stipe after a three-year layoff or whatever, or two-year layoff, whatever it's going to have been, um, and, and even further away, further removed from his, from his last victory, like, you know, I don't feel, I don't feel great about how Stipe matches up against John Jones. I think Aspinall is... Really dangerous. There's a couple other guys in the mix there. 
Yeah, we also have Pavlovich, and that's the thing about both Aspinall and Pavlovich is that they're both used to dominating and just running through people in the UFC, even at a pretty high level, right? And given their talents, they can do that. Given that it's heavyweight, you can be a guy that makes it all the way up to even winning the title, and we don't truly know that you have huge holes in your game. It, it was the same thing with Francis Ngannou at one point, right, where he made it all the way up to the title shot because he just needed to touch people once for them to drop him, for him to win a fight prior to that. And then suddenly he faced a prime Stipe Miocic, and it wasn't that easy, right? He, he, he was having a really hard time and then lost the fight after that. So this is a division in which a Pavlovich or an Aspinall can make it all the way and maybe even become champ, especially if John Jones is out of the way, and we still don't get to see the the huge holes in their games. And this happens. Yeah, it's possible. We, but division. we know... The thing is that we know that Pavlovich has a weakness, which is like if you can if, if you can do what John Jones can do generally, right, which is get somebody down one way or another and get top control. Like I could see John Jones beating him, you know, of course he could get knocked out, but I could see him beating Pavlovich just like he beat Serogan. I th- I think that Aspinall is a more, you know, he might not be quite the hammer, but he certainly has some pop. I think his pop has a lot to do with you know, with time, what did you know? What did Connor say back in the day? Um, uh, technique and timing beats like beats speed, speed and power. Yeah, but Aspinall is uh, extremely fast. That's he's very like fast, he has a but couple he's of those attributes. But yes, he does. But he call he calls his shots and and he makes his moves uh, very smoothly um, from a grappling standpoint. He goes for chokes, not dissimilar from how John Jones does, um, standing chokes, things like that. So. Um, I think I think Aspinall is the more interesting, uh, more interesting matchup because you know the other guy gets on his back. I think it's I think it's a serial gone repeat. Yeah, I mean I, I think it's 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 probably a little bit more complex than that. But again, Aspinall we haven't seen him pushed. We haven't seen him put into trouble. He's got a couple of losses earlier in his career. It's not like he's this just this untouchable dynamo who's coming into the heavyweight title matchup at sixteen and zero. The guy's got you know thirteen and three record. Three times somebody beat him. I think one of those times may have, two of those times actually may have been injuries. But the fact that it is doable, the fact that his body has some durability issues, even though we don't know whether his chin does or not. Like, again, we've seen this with prospects in so many other divisions where way before the title shot, they get exposed. We just yeah, don't it's get actually to see a DQ. It in he, got, he got deked for a 12 oh, to 6 right. elbow. That's right. That's right. That, that, that's, that sounds about right. So he got, he got, submi- he got submitted with it by a heel hook, right? Right. A la, a la Frank Mir Brock Lesnar. He got submitted by a heel hook. 12 to 6 elbows, a la John Jones Matt Hamill. It's funny, all of his losses are throwbacks. And then the knee injury, like, we didn't learn anything from that. That's a freak. That's just, like, sometimes shit happens to a body, you know? No, but that was like, the exact kind of matchup I wanted to see him in. Granted, he could have absolutely gotten uh, Blades out of there in the first or second round. Which we've seen Blades lose in that specific way, but we have also haven't seen him uh, face a legitimate wrestler who's going to put him on his back. Aspinall is good from top position. How's he going to do from his back? How's his wrestling defense against I, a, a I believe. Opponent? I wonder those things. I believe that... that um, I think John Jones has a lot more trouble uh, getting Aspinall uh, on his back or in a compromising uh, grappling position. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that is the case. But again, like there's promising things to look forward to at heavyweight, which is very difficult and rare to see. It would be a shame if John Jones doesn't defend it after Steve. And I think as long as money-wise he's in a good place, there's a chance that he might just retire. He's going to want to... Uh, he's going to want to copy George St. Pierre and Khabib Nurmagomedov and leaving as the title holder rather than sticking around for too long and getting beat up by these up-and-comers. I think he's the kind of guy that's 
that I mean, I, I do think he loves the spotlight. He loves the drama. He's suddenly a fan favorite for the first time in his career. So, like, is he really going to only allow that to happen for two fights? I think he's the kind of guy that might retire and then come back. Uh, I don't think he'll be a fan favorite against Stipe. Um, I don't know the way the way he was really cheered against Gone. Uh, you know, granted it was a fight in the states. That's an that's an American Frenchman fight. That's a but USA. When has John USA Jones team? gotten the kind of treatment that he's gotten upon his return? Yeah. When it comes to the fan reaction, even in like pre pre event uh, pre event events, right? Like in the press conference, the way that people cheered for him, it wasn't necessarily we hate Gone, we love you. It was you are awesome, you're a superstar, and we love you. Is the kind of vibe that I got. And is John Jones gonna let that go? That's what he's been buying for his entire career. Is he really gonna let that go? I think there's a chance he announces a retirement and then comes back a year or so later, uh, and and maybe the Aspinall and Pavlovich weaknesses will have already been exposed, and he's gonna have maybe a clearer path then. But he'll be pretty damn old. So look, it is intriguing it is fascinating i do hope he sticks around and defends the title against you know one or two of the younger contenders rather than just mowing through mowing through somebody like stipe and again gone gone looked like the aspinall and the and the um pavlovich of this division just very recently right until he was smoked by john jones until he was you know decisioned in a very competitive fight well kind of there's a big difference in that gone never really seemed like a finisher the guys that he finished mostly were guys that quit or guys that were not really top tier Right, but for that reason, we got to see him go deep in a fight. We did. And we, we got to see him get knocked down even and get up and keep fighting. And we haven't seen that from Pavlovich and Aspinall. So, so again, no. bigger questions about these guys, I would say, than even him. But you're right, they're more dangerous than he is. Yes. Yeah, no no doubt about that. So, look, there's, there, again, some things to look forward to at heavyweight, which which is not something we're going to say very often in mixed martial arts, uh, I don't think, in the near future, because big men tend to go, athletic big men tend to go to different sports where there's less risk, more reward, and you don't have to be an uber star to make decent a decent living. And then we have Molly McCann, who, you know, we've known her ground game doesn't really exist. We've known she's a brawler. We've known that, you know, she can do well when she's spurred by the crowd, but the moment that fight went to the ground, and Julia Storolenko was looking pretty good up until that, but the moment that fight went to the ground... It was all Julia. It was complete dominant. McCann not only gave up the takedown because she was so worried about Julia striking, which she didn't expect to be worried about, but then she gave up the position from having her back taken to giving up the armbar. And, I mean, just some very kind of fundamentals that she was missing that are still not in her game. And Julia's really good at getting that armbar, even against decent opposition, right? But uh, on the ground. But McCann just did not have the wherewithal yeah. to make the right and call. She's going, and she's going, she's going to straw weight now, which... Yeah, I'm sure that'll change everything. A higher-level division with better fighters, I'm sure it's going to just help her and she's going to be a juggernaut there. I will say, there's something to be said about the fact that Molly McCann and Patty Pimblett are not actually at all high-level fighters. Molly McCann has benefited from being in a weak division, um, and so she she picked up a couple of these wins over these really, really, really mediocre opponents, Um, whereas, you know, Pimblett, he's not in a weak division, dude. The UFC's matchmaking him in a way that gives him the best opportunity to win, but these people are not elite fighters you can just see it but when you watch them fight and you know it's you're in a weird predicament if you're trying to match make them and get the most juice out of their star power but also you know they're probably going to lose to even decent opposition julia starlenko's ufc record is something like one in five and she just smoked molly mccann it's it's you know it's and maybe not a perfect analog but it's ricky hatton syndrome you know the uk is great at building stars building hometown heroes ricky hatton was a good was a good fighter but we when he got in there with, with Floyd, when he got in there with yeah. Manny, oof. Yep, yep. It Not pretty. Story. You're right about Not that. Not pretty. And then we had the fight that I was probably most looking forward to on that card, which was Nathaniel Wood versus Andre Feely. Man, that was a really just back-and-forth barn burner. 
Philly. Yeah, I felt for early. I felt for Philly. Philly I had a great too, second man. round. It was, it was, I agree. It was really good. He's and caught Philly a lot of bad. In the first round too. Yeah, yeah. He's caught a lot of bad breaks. He's a good. He always comes to scrap. You know, Andre Andre Philly is like he the does, heir. But, but that's how you describe a journeyman, right? Yeah, well, that's I was gonna say. You know, Philly's like the heir to Cub Swanson. You know, like he shows Cub up. Cub Swanson he goes, seems to have a higher ceiling. He didn't. He didn't go like I don't know five and six at any point in the UFC up until maybe recently. Like if you look at if you look at uh, you know, Cub Swanson uh, also Philly's was record. in was in earlier. Like like Philly's been in there against really good fighters. Like Swanson had, came out of that's the true. WEC. Um, yeah. But if, if you look at Philly's record at this point, he is, let me see, in his last four, he's five, probably five, six, he's probably his 500. Last six fights, in his last six fights, he's won one. In his last eight fights, he's won two. So, like, you know, he's not, he's like, as much as he has some of the, some of the tangibles, as much as he has the the size for that division, as much as he has offensive, uh, really does good work offensively. He makes bad calls. He's not uber durable, unfortunately for him. And uh, and I think the ground game is still a little bit of a weakness. But man, this was a great test for Wood. And Wood has shown time and again now, if you're going to beat this man, it's because his chin cannot take a bomb. And you know he's going to struggle with guys at 145 clocking him across the head, man, as he moves up this division. Indeed. Um, anything else that's worth discussing on that card? No, no, just I would just say that because of these mediocre cards, like post Volkanovski, who was awesome. This was this like, wasn't a bad one going into it. I was it, I was looking forward to a bunch of fights on this. It one. wasn't that bad, but there, I still, pardon me, I still just want fewer fewer cards, better storytelling, better matchmaking. It's hard. Like I don't know. Every time the UFC does anything as a brand, every time Dana White opens his mouth. Right now, like the way he followed his what he had to say about Adesanya's comments around his Duplessis outburst, I'm just like, I actually don't know what he had to say about that. That he didn't care. That he thought it was he thought it was good. Yeah, that's not um, And and if it was Tyron Woodley who said it, you better believe that would have been a real issue. Just to be clear, if it was a guy he didn't like that wasn't making him money. Yeah, it's just there's something about there's something about being a fan of the UFC. It's ha- it's been going back and forth of this over the last couple of years, but for every Edgar or Volkanovski or uh, I'm trying to think or like you know supporting you know Angie Hill for everything that makes us really excited to be a fan, there's like I feel like there's three things that make me want to take a shower. Yeah, there's a bunch of Sean Strickland's and Kobe Covington's, but maybe the less popular versions. Oh. I know what you mean. Um, yeah. And then outside of that, um, let me see. Paul Craig came back against Andre Muniz. Andre Muniz is showing that like once a fight goes deep, this is an example of a prospect coming up who's looking like a killer. And then he gets he gets put in a couple of these tougher matchups against guys that can survive the early onslaught. And then everything falls apart for him, right? Andre Muniz at heavyweight yeah, the... probably would have made it to a title shot at least. Maybe the title. Oh, yeah, it's the, uh, yeah, we can call that the Tiago Silva postulate. Yeah, yeah, not, <laughs> like, not 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 unreasonable. The Tiago Silva made it, I think, a little bit higher up the rung, although a much lower level division at the time. Um, and uh, let me see, outside of that, Lerone Murphy uh, dominated Josh Kulabau. I expected that to be competitive. I edged Murphy, but I didn't think that he Kulabau looked great over. for the first like ninety seconds. He did. It just seems like like the physicality of Lerone Murphy was too much, and the fact that Lerone Murphy was willing to use it in this matchup. He usually fights tit for tat with everyone. He kind of fights down to his level of competition. In this case, man, Kulabau is better than some of the guys that Murphy. Has has gone tit for tat with in the past. Um, and then uh, Daniel Marcos got a decision over David Grant that I thought he did not deserve, but it was competitive. And if you're going to look at it as far as, like, let's look at the future of this division, probably better that Daniel Marcos is 15-0, and 0, 
after a close fight with David Grant than him losing this matchup. David Grant's probably a year or two from retiring given his age, given the division. And so, you know, the prospect for Daniel Marcos is higher. It's unfortunate that this went to the wrong guy because I believe that David Grant deserved it and I had a bet on him by decision. Um, and so this was painful for me to see the decision called. And, I, also, and, and my, I also thought he deserved it. Yeah, and, uh, and, and to see Daniel Marcos walk away with it again, better for the overall long-term feature of the division, sucks for David Grant, who should should be coming off a win rather than three losses in a row. And outside of that, Joel Alvarez submitted Diakasi. That was predictable enough. Mahmoud Baradov uh, got rid of Brian Barbarena. That was predictable, at least to me. I feel like you may have taken a flyer on Barbarena if we picked this event. I feel like you may have taken a three-point mm. flyer on him. Um, a three-point? I mean, who knows? Maybe I would have. I don't know. Yeah, and uh, I don't think there's anything else that is worth diving into outside of that. Nick, let's get into UFC 291, Poirier versus Gaethje 2. Only 12 fights on this one, not 15 like that last card that we just discussed. And again, a lot more being on the bone. I, I think, like, I'm, I'm a lot, uh, given the kind of hunger that we've just gone through with the UFC posting these horrible cards week after week after week, especially that one from a couple of weeks ago, headlined by Holly Holm and uh, Mara Buena Silva, getting these two cards last week's card, which I thought looked promising and turned out to be okay. And this card, which looks pretty good too. I am, I'm, you know, thankful for it. Would I pay, you know, 80 or 90 bucks for this card? Probably not. But, uh, you know, there's other ways to, uh, there's other ways to get results. Nick, you could just look up on topology and then you'll get the results and that's that. Because naturally, I would never watch it legally. Try and true method. Yes, sir. So we're um, going to throw down, man? Are you ready? Are you ready to spar with the best? I'm ready to spar with the best. I just, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll take you in the meantime. But if, if you have if you have the best on appointment coming in, I am open, Nicola. No, dude, you had su- you had success for a while. You were like Buster Douglas. You won the championship. And then you just been, won the championship just, three you just times been at, in a row. You just been at Burger King. And like now I'm here. <laughs> like holy field and i'm just like you're i don't know what happened to your picking man it's just it's kind of sad it, it it is it, it is sad but and you know what nick you've stepped up your game so i i feel like rather than rather than uh taking it away from me i feel like you should give yourself credit you've been you've been stepping up you've been making good picks you've also been making some pretty good two-point picks um getting those yeah unfortunately there. this card this card is ugly with ugly for that yeah but yeah you don't necessarily maybe a, see maybe a couple maybe a couple of dice rolls let's see how it goes i'm ready to get into it Let's do it, man. Do you know which one of us has the first pick this week? Uh, I thought it was your mom's pick. All right, I guess it's mine then. I will. Uh, I will <laughs> Wait a minute, no, no, no. Hang uh, on, hang on. I don't know. When was the last card we picked? Vol- oh, the okay. So, card? so the last card we picked was the Vol card, and I picked JDM. And of course, that fight, that fight got yanked, and so I ended up, yeah, I ended up losing a winning pick. You ended up losing oh, a losing boy. pick. Speaking of JDM, Cruz. man. Yeah, yeah, like he's in he's in trouble, man, because that division can wrestle. We can talk about that yeah. later. Yeah, um, he's, he's a lot like um, Damian. I forget this gentleman's last name. Jenkins, Jack Jenkins. He's a lot like him. Really dangerous on the offense, but man, when it comes to his grappling, there's some work to do, and they're from you know similar parts of the world. Well, it depends. We don't know exactly how how awesome that guy is, but yeah, like he look. We'll see. But it's it's scary when you're dealing with you know a division. Yeah. Uh, a division filled with like Sean Brady's. Yeah, and that, and that's another example of a prospect that may have gotten exposed. Now, look, there's a lot of attributes to it, right? He had to get ready. Uh, he had to cut weight twice in a row. Like that could be a factor. He, he cut weight twice in a seven to eight day period. Mm. That's a significant thing, right? That alone can make a difference. He had to accept fight after fight on short notice against opponents that he wasn't, yeah. you know, necessarily prepared for. So, you know, th- there's reason to not be too down on him. But the fact that he f- was fighting Sean Brady. 
right? Sean Brady would have taken that motherfucker down. He would have done something with it. That would have been a very different kind of matchup. So I think he got he he, he was fortunate if he was going to perform that way that it didn't end up being against Sean Brady. Uh, Nikolai, it seems like you have the first pick because everything must go your way this season, and I respect. Yeah, that. I'm gonna st- I'm gonna start out with a, with a fighter I've picked a lot. Sometimes it's worked out. Last time it didn't, and. I'm going to pick her again. I'm going to go with Miranda Maverick to beat uh, Priscilla Cachoeira. Um, you know, Maverick just fought like four weeks ago. She lost to JJ coming out of the Canadian fighter um, who's looked really great and was super aggressive um, and precise. I think that I think that Maverick's aggression and even though sometimes her, gra- her grappling isn't strong enough and her wrestling isn't strong enough, I think it should be here. I think she's just stronger. Priscilla's had trouble with um, with fighters who are who are you know fairly good on the on the ground and um, and stronger than her. And I think Ma- I do think Maverick's pretty strong. Um, so I see her being able to like bully her way to a victory here. She's also you know resilient because she's she's gotten out of some really tough positions against finishers. So I'm gonna. I got a lot of. I got a lot of faith in Miranda. If she loses this, then the then the wheels off the bus. But I think this is. I think this is a confidence back get right fight for her. So I'm really glad that you're picking this fight first because you know I'm not nearly as much of a believer in Miranda Maverick offensively. She's dynamic with her striking. She's pretty decent with her takedowns. She's pretty good from top position. But defensively, she's porous in all those areas. She's very, very hittable, even though she's athletic, right? She can't get out of the way of a punch for her life. And Priscilla Cachoeira hits incredibly hard. She's also very easy to take down if you're willing to keep going for takedowns. And we saw that in her last matchup, which she was a huge favorite. And I failed to pull the trigger. I should have pulled the trigger on Jasmine Jusevicius. I had a strong inclination that she was going to win that fight. Uh, but I but I, I, I chickened out, and I, it cost me, right? That, that, that alone could have brought us, like, uh, way closer in points. But... But, you know, she got overwhelmed by her. And here's the thing. Nick. She took this fight on about uh, 12, 15 days notice. And that's about a month and a half after she was kind of roughed up by Miranda, uh, by, uh, by uh, Jasmine. Jasmine. Vicious. Right. So, so like, there, there's definitely some reasons to be concerned against a heavy, heavy hitter in Priscilla Cachoeira who comes, in, comes through as an underdog every so often. Yeah, I guess, but she, whose wins are against Gina Mazzani and Shayna Dobson and who lost to Ari Molly Lipsky? McCann. Ari Lipsky? G.O. Kim? Which she probably lost deserve, to, but still, lost to Molly McCann and Jillian Robertson. If the, if if those two are able, I just feel like strength and athleticism wise, Miranda Maverick is a is a much better fighter than either of those two. This is MMA math, but I I'm following the MMA math in this case. No, I I, I hear where you're coming from. It's just uh, again, I I would have been much less confident. But you have had you know like decent success picking the very unpredictable women's divisions. So. And is, am I right to say this is the only female fight on this card? I think it might be. Oddly enough, there's usually two or three. Um, in any case, I am glad that you make that pick first because I wanted very little to do with that one unless I was picking Cachoeira. And if I picked her, I would have wanted to pick her for three points, not two. So I just, plus 215 I just, isn't quite enough. She, what do you mean? She's at plus 245. Uh, she's plus 260. Oh, she's plus 260 Plus, plus 260 I, I and, a, plus, and plus 257. Yeah, dude, you could have oh, gotten wow. that for... But Wait, I'm, I'm seeing three. Cachoeira... Yeah, I, I do I'm see on, uh, two. I'm uh, on fightodds.io. One, uh, one line that is plus two fifteen, so that's fair. There, I have two sixty and two fifty seven. Uh, there's some so three you, point opportunity there. I just yeah. you know I, I I wouldn't want to have anything to do with this. So again, very glad that you. All took right. Well, I block I blocked your I very strategically now, blocked your three I'm not point. Lie. It's not that easy for me to decide which is going to be my first pick between the couple of options that I have. I think that I'm going to go with the matchup between. 
Jake Matthews and Darian Flowers. Darius Flowers, excuse me. Darius um, Flowers, he's got solid offensive striking. Uh, his boxing in particular is good. I think he comes from a boxing gym largely. And, like, he's pretty dynamic against, like, really mid to lower than mid-level of competition when it comes to, like, the, the independent scene, right? But here against Jake Matthews, who, don't get me wrong, did Jake Matthews look really washed in his last matchup against Samuelsberger? Yeah, he looked terrible. He looked incredibly easy to hurt. So Flowers may very well just bonk him, and that could be it. But the fact that Matthews has a history of getting really good double leg takedowns, which I hope he goes for, I hope he doesn't think that, like, his success standing over Andre Fialho means that he's suddenly a world beater standing. Not that you necessarily need to be a world beater to beat Darius Flowers, but we've seen crazier things than a guy from Contender Series taking a, a super short notice fight against an established veteran and getting the win because he's got more power than the veterans ready for on short notice. Um, I'm going to take I'm going to take Jake Matthews in this one, but definitely have some trepidation because Flowers uh, is a knockout hitter. Yeah, cool. Good pick. Good pick, I think. Um, I'm going to go with, you know, the odds aren't so far in my favor here, but um, I don't see a real clear path to victory for Michelle Pejea against Wonderboy. I think Wonderboy can still strike. I think he... Um, I think he's just. I think he's more active. I think he throws more shots. Um, I think that he's his, his how technical he is is a bad matchup uh, for Pahea, who I could see being a little nervous uh, to throw the trigger. And like his, I don't think his usual tricks are going to work against a disciplined striker of this level. And he's not. Um, I, I also don't see him turning into, uh, you know, a, a wrestle guy. The, the path to beat. Wonder Boy is spamming is spamming takedowns, keeping him on his back. I don't think Pahea is going to fight that way. I may be totally wrong, but I don't. I just don't think so. So I'm going to go with Wonder Boy. So Pahea, who came into the UFC just throwing absolutely wild strikes, and like that's his way of getting attention. That's his way of getting a crowd reaction. He seems to feed on that crowd reaction, right? Argument can be made that he shouldn't have lost that decision to Chris Tristan Connolly. Even though he was acting a fool and Tristan Connolly was fresh toward the end and he was tired, he still did way, way, way more damage. It wasn't even close, right? Diego Sanchez, he got a DQ against, probably should have been, you know, he was dominating, probably should have been a win from him. Now, that had happened. We're talking about him being undefeated in the UFC now, which is quite a bit of a difference from his current record, which is 6-2, and two, to be fair, right? He would have been 8-0 and oh in the UFC going into this matchup. Probably would have been either even odds or with him as a slight favorite against an aging, uh, weathered, step-behind um, I should say past his prime at least, uh, Stephen Thompson. Stephen Thompson, though, man, like if you look at his results over the last several years, they haven't been that great. If you look at his record over the last six, seven, eight, let me see, three, six, over his last nine fights, he is four and five. Now, granted, those five losses are to, are, are to like names, right? Bilal Muhammad, understandable. Gilbert Burns, understandable. Not great that he got dominated by both, though. Competitive fights, I would have accepted. He got dominated grappling-wise by those guys. Anthony Pettis knocked him out. Darren Till walked away with the decision over him that Darren Till probably didn't deserve, but it was still extremely close with Darren Till, and we all know where Darren Till is now, right? Tyron Woodley beat him uh, back in 2017, and that's one of his losses over those last several years, right? So going into this matchup, it's hard to, for me to be confident. I know that against really aggressive strikers, the reason that I favored him over Kevin Holland very confidently is because Kevin Holland is an aggressive striker. 
If you are going to aggressively go at him, he's going to beat you up. Joff Neal, aggressive, got beat up. Vincente Luque, aggressive, got beat up. George Masvidal, aggressive offensive fighter, he got beat up by Stephen Thompson. So we've seen a pattern, right? And Michel Pereira largely is aggressive, sometimes too aggressive. But he's a large, large man. He could be a middleweight. And he's coming off of, you know, fights over, uh, fights in which he is showing a lot more patience. He's made the corrections since he was a wild fighter, and he's a lot cleaner now. He's a lot... He's a lot more patient now. So do I think he has a chance? Yes. Do I think that, uh, would I have picked Stephen Thompson this early? Probably not, but I see where you're coming from. I would have picked him at the end of the day because it's hard to rely on Michelle Pereira to grapple, even though he's able to, and he does occasionally go for takedowns. And it's hard to rely on him to really keep all of his wits about him against this level of a kickboxer. So I agree with you, but I do see some risk. The way that Anthony Pettis knocked him out, you're telling me that Michelle Pereira, who's not a lightweight size, he's a middleweight size, you told me he can't possibly knock out um, uh, Stephen Thompson. He can't, but I, I don't know if I'm going to see Stephen Thompson. He tends to get knocked out when he's putting pressure on you and he's got your back against the fence. That that didn't work well for him against Woodley, who clocked him on the counter. Didn't work well against uh, Anthony Pettis, who clocked him on the counter. And I'm not sure that he's going to end up in that position against Michelle Pereira, although Michelle Pereira does put his back to the fence. Um, I, I just think the odds are probably about right here where they're not very far apart. I think Michelle Pereira is a really capable guy, and he could be 8-0 in the UFC up until now, and the fact that Wonder Boy is washed definitely has me kind of considering an underdog play here, but I see where you're coming from and also kind of glad that you're making this pick. I probably would have made it later had you not, but but I'm glad you're making this pick. My next pick is going to be in the matchup, and, and this is where it gets into the weeds. I'm going to take a risk on a favorite who is largely unproven, but looking really promising lately. I'm going to go ahead and take Gabriel Bonfim to get the win over Trevin Giles. Giles looked like a real prospect early on in his UFC career, right? And he's not really developed much past that. If anything, he's taken steps back in a lot of the potential that he showed early in his UFC career. He's low output. He doesn't have the best MMA IQ. And he can be taken down and controlled. Tends to sweep or get up eventually, right? But he can be taken down and controlled. And the fact that he can be is really kind of deadly against Bonfim, who's really just a solid offensive grappler. He can catch opportunistic submissions on a transition. He can he can get top position and dominate positionally if he needs to, right? Um, now, Bonfim likes to pressure, and he kind of pressures you back and waits for you to throw something, and then he counters you with his boxing, and usually with combos, aggressive combos. Can I see him potentially coming in, walking into a Trevin Giles counter? I can, but Trevin Giles, the way he's been looking lately, it's hard to see him getting this prospect out of there. He's been losing to just these kinds of prospects, even though he should arguably be giving them really stiff tests. He's kind of getting thrown out of there is what we've been seeing lately. So I'm going to take Gabriel Bonfim to beat Trevin Giles, knowing that Bonfim is a really young guy and could be exposed here. Yeah, I like I like that pick. I think that's a good pick. Um, boy, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of tight stuff over here. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna throw caution to the wind. And, um, shit, yo, I'm actually, I'm actually going to pick, uh, the heavyweight fight. I believe that, um, I think Derek Lewis is a hundred percent done. And if he is able to land a shot, I think he's got one big shot in him and I will put my money on the, the massive, uh, Marcus Rosario de Lima big thick dude uh being able to eat whatever being able to withstand what Derek Lewis has um and and I think I think this is the end of the black beast I bet against Rogerio de Lima too many times and no he's not elite like I don't think he's ever going to be elite but 
I think that any sign if if someone doesn't fold in front of Derek Lewis, I don't think Lewis has it physically or uh, or or in his heart uh, to really compete anymore. So all all Delima has to do is kick his legs, create you know not not get hit by a a big bomb or 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 survive one big bomb, um, and then call it a day. So part of my theme for today's event is that I think there are several fighters who look promising, like uh, Trevin Giles, who I spoke about earlier, who look promising initially and then never really truly developed their games. And oddly enough, of all people on planet, planet Earth, Marcos Rogério de Lima has done some development. The guy came into the UFC with zero gas tank. Oh, he losing. definitely has. Yeah, was losing to to every other fighter that he faced. In fact, he he was consistently going win and loss, win and loss, win and loss for a while there. Unless the UFC gave him a couple of really just easy layups, in which in which case he'd run through people like Igor Porkajak and Richardson Maero, who I'm not even entirely sure I remember who that is. Um, and then lately he's been putting his game together in a big way. He's now four and one in his last five fights. That one loss being to Blagoy Ivanov in that time. Arguably, very, very close fight. Could have gone either way. I was rooting for Blagoy, so I probably edged the decision his way. But it was an extremely close fight. And so I think I had a, a, a bet on Blagoy by decision in that one. So I was looking at it through bias sunglasses right that fight. And I thought Blagoy edged him a little bit. Um, but that fight could have easily gone either way, especially given the damage that Rogério de Lima can deliver. And here's the thing. He's developed. You know, We can rely on him to go three rounds if we need it, especially against an underdeveloped fighter like Waldo Cortez Acosta, who we fought last time. Andre Arlovsky, he knocked him down. He has serious power in his hands. Rogério de Lima does. He's got a pretty good offensive top submission game. If you can't, if you can't hold on to his pressure, if you can't deal with that 270 pounds on top of you, you might just get submitted. And Andre Arlovsky got submitted by him. Ben Rothwell got TKO'd by him standing. Um, Maurice Green he beat before that. And so, and so again, this is not exactly elite, elite MMA, but this is heavyweight. You, you don't have high standards. And Derek Lewis, like you said, he's been given up. He's been almost voluntarily giving up these fights, right? The way that he lost to Taitu Vasa, it looked like he just decided, I'm going to fall down because I can't take this anymore. Because Taitu Vasa, you know, I just buzzed him and he's still there and he's still he's still going. The way that he lost to Cyril Gaon, he literally looked to me like he decided, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm getting out of here. Sergei Pavlovich, Sergei Spivak dominated him. Complete thrashing. Right, Sergei Spivak got him out of there. It was a debatable, maybe maybe a debatable uh, stoppage, but the fact that it was dropped by him immediately, granted it's, it's Pavlovich, he can drop anybody, um, you know, he's he's in a really bad headspace. He's now in the prelims. He used to be a main eventer or at least on the main card of the UFC. He used to be a solid name. He's still a name, right? Like, it's not like Tony Ferguson and him are, are no longer popular with fans. But I got to agree with you. I think I think uh, you're like it's always risky picking heavyweights, so this could easily go the other way, knowing that Derek Lewis can land a bomb and that Rogério de Lima is a human being. But I, I've got to go with Rogério. I think he's he should be able to do okay standing. Derek Lewis might just fold there, and if not, uh, if he does drop him, if he can take him down, he can he can do something with Derek Lewis on his back, especially the version of Derek Lewis that we've been seeing lately. So I agree with you on the pick there. My next pick is going to be in the matchup between Roman Kopolov and Claudio. Hibero, Hibero, you know, looks like a decent prospect. He looks very athletic. He looks physically strong. Some Muay Thai fundamentals, although he makes a lot of, you know, he makes a lot of pretty basic mistakes as well. And he came in as, you know, I think, I think maybe a, a slight dog in his last matchup and got that win. And that was actually relatively recent that Claudio Hibero picked up that win over Joseph Holmes. Um, lost to uh, Abdul Razak Al Hassan in that in that first matchup, right? So in that first matchup in the UFC, I should say. 
So he's facing Roman Kopolov, who this is the guy that I pegged pretty early on. Like, this is a prospect. This kid has real potential. He's a southpaw boxer, a Russian guy, trains with some of those Dagestani people from what I understand, right? So he's got some wrestlers that are working on him constantly. And he's coming off of wins over Poniela Soriano and Alessio Dicherico. Not the top of the division, but certainly above Claudio Hibero. Certainly in that Razak al-Hassan region or above, right? And Razak al-Hassan is the guy who, who basically got rid of Hibero, got him out of there. I've got to go with Roman Kopolov. I think his southpaw pressure game is going to work. I think he's going to put the kind of numbers on Hibero that Hibero is going to have a hard time dealing with. And I think his experience, the fact that he's been in the UFC for so long now, he's put he's he's been there on the losing side, he's been there on the winning side. Um, I, I've got to go with Roman Kopolov in this one. And, and, and I think, uh, look, there's always a risk going up against an athletic d- dynamic striker, but uh, I, I have some confidence in Kopolov. I, I don't believe in Hibero's heart or his will to win past a tough moment. Oof. Condemns the man's nature. Um, boy, let's, Jesus Christ, this gets tough. I'm, uh, I'm going to go with an underdog here. I actually think that Michael Case is a really bad matchup for Kevin Holland. Um, the guys that beat Chiesa can usually beat him at his own game. Um, he's, he's got pretty good reach. I don't, like, he's not a, he's not a bad striker and he, and his chin's, and he's got a pretty good chin. I think Michael Chiesa will be able to take this fight to the place where Kevin Holland gets beat. I think Chiesa should be able to choke out, uh, Kevin Holland in the first two rounds. I really do think that this is going to look and feel a lot like the Holland Kyle Dawkins fight uh, felt. I, I think that Kaz is the kind of fighter that gets Holland out of his. I mean, the K, the the Dawkins thing it was an accidental headbutt. It got you know, uh, but Dawkins was doing surprisingly well. People who are rangy, crafty, who can mix it up, get in close with Holland, uh, work their takedown game, can sub him. He is a striker, striker, and I think Kaz is. When he's done really well, it's because he's been able to pull guys into his world and get that choke. So, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from, and I was looking to see whether there was an underdog opportunity there. Obviously, the odds are not There is, but not enough. Yeah. Not enough for a two-pointer, but, but, but I still believe in him. So, on paper, I thought that like we've seen Holland uh, struggle against good offensive grapplers, right? guys that can take him onto his back. The thing is that, that was back at middleweight, right? Predominantly where we saw him dominate in that way. And and since then, he's come down to 170. And so the strength difference is a little bit of a differential there. But here's the thing. This is a former lightweight in Chiesa facing a former middleweight in Holland. So they used to fight 30 pounds apart just like, I don't know, what is it, two years ago? Pounds. Even though, you know, there's this huge gap in the, in the sizes of the opposition that they're used to fighting prior to that, right? And, and Holland's right hand is going to be easier to land on a southpaw. You know, the backhand punch is, is a lot easier to land uh, when it comes to an orthodox versus southpaw matchup. So who's ever crossed, who's ever uh, right, hand for, uh, right hand for Holland, left hand for Chiesa, is going to be a lot more landable. The thing is that Holland is not really in danger of getting rocked in all likelihood by Chiesa, right? Uh, the Holland makes uh, takedowns easy by crashing into the pocket, which allows for Chiesa to get that body lock, right? But but the, the, the thing about that is that Holland tends to get taken down against the fence outside of Chimaev, right? Whereas Kiesa doesn't really rely on the fence in the same way. If he, if he does start on the fence, he goes into a body lock and goes for a takedown from there. I'm not sure that he's going to be able to dominate him quite in that way. Holland's a decent grappler, but you're right that he's been submitted by guys like uh, Brandon Allen. And so this could very well happen. I just feel like the size disparity being on paper in Holland's favor, even though like 
you know, they're coming th from 30 pounds apart, even though there's only two inches of height difference. Holland's a little bit sh taller. He's got seven-inch reach advantage. And the way that Chiesa lunges in with these sloppy strikes to get his clinch is concerning when it comes to taking that right hand from Holland, who has legitimately serious power. And I know the Chiesa doesn't get knocked out a lot. I know the Chiesa's weakness is also getting submitted. There's a chance Holland can do that as well. There's a chance he can have some grappling moments against him. So um, I, ended up, I ended up edging the other way, but I see where you're coming from. Like the, I think the odds are about where they should be on this fight. You, you would think Holland would be a bigger favorite on paper, but but I think the odds are about where they should be, and, uh, and, and I respect you making that dog pick. My next pick is going to be in the matchup. And this is where, for me, it all got difficult. I think every every one of the rest of these fights is, is more difficult to pick. Um, in the matchup between Bobby Green and Tony Ferguson, we've got two fighters that seem to be significantly past their prime, right? Both slipping, but Tony seems to be slipping harder, at least on paper, right? But Tony has slipped against way, way higher, higher level of competition, right? Closer to Makhachev, who completely blew through uh, uh, Green, than to guys like Drew Dober and Jared Gordon, who've been kind of roughing up Green, right? And so and so that's got to be factored in, the fact that Tony's been on the complete deep end of the pool. Tony looked great against Chandler early, who looked good against Gaethje and Poirier early, right? And if it wasn't for that kick from Chandler, Chandler may have very well lost that fight to this version of Tony Ferguson. So it, it, it might be, a, it might be a, a kind of an indictment of of Chandler in me saying this, but it's also got to give some credit to Tony for doing well in that matchup. Uh, he has a concerning loss to Diaz, but he took that fight on a couple days' notice against a way bigger opponent in a five-round fight. He wasn't ready for a five-round fight. He wasn't ready to fight uh, uh, Nate Diaz, who's a who's a significantly larger opponent, even though I know he was scheduled against Li Jingliang or something. So I think like there's an argument to be made that Tony might be not quite pa as past his prime as uh, as he seems, and that Bobby Green is probably about there, right? If you look at Green, he, his losses to Drew Dober, Tiago Moises, Francisco Trinaldo, Drakkar Close, these are guys that never had the ceiling that Tony Ferguson had. Tony Ferguson had a championship-level ceiling at one point, right? These are guys that never did. Bobby Green is never in that championship conversation. He beats mid-level guys at best. And so for that reason, I think I'm going to take the rider on Tony Ferguson for three points. Probably going to regret this, but the fact that Bobby Green is also clearly slipping, his chin is going, and I know maybe that's less of a factor. Bobby Green is going to be way faster here. He's going to be craftier on the feet. I just feel like there's a chance that Tony's pressure can get to him. There's a chance that Tony can land some bombs on a guy whose chin is slipping and a guy who's also slipping. And the fact that, again, the reason he's such a huge dog is because he's been facing way higher level of competition and getting dominated by them. Not really finished by anybody besides Chandler, though, right? Or, to be fair, Diaz as well. But but he's he was dominated in decisions against way higher level competition than his Bobby Green. So... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the rider for three points on Tony Ferguson, Nikolai. Wow. I, sh I wish I'd seen that coming so I could have blocked it. Um, <laughs> you, you had Green, I, I assume, in that one? Um, I wasn't sure because I don't trust Green either. And it's just like, does Tony have one of those, you know, Tito Ortiz versus Ryan Brader moments right. to pull out of the hat before but he's Ryan done. Ryan Bader was in his prime. Bobby Green is not, right? So I, I know. see what you're saying there. I do see what you're saying. Yeah. There. Um, um and, and and again it, it's it's also the fact that the fact that like Bobby Green is slipping so hard to make him a minus two something, minus three hundred favorite is insanity to me, dude. Like look at him lately. He's been looking horrid. So I'm i I'm split right now between uh well Bobby Green looked awesome against Drew Dober till he didn't. Um True. The uh, even he was winning that fight. Um, yeah, and, and he's going to be the much much faster man in this matchup. He's going to be the smaller guy, but the much faster man. So yeah, look, the, there's there's a reason he's a favorite. Just this level of favorite is insanity to me. I don't remember so how Tony looked against Nate Diaz, but um, not great overall. 
But the, it's uh, also Nate Diaz. They both kind of look shabby, but Nate Diaz obviously yeah. uh, uh, obviously had the edge with the size and everything. So it's just like, my, now do I go with the prelim on the power shot of Semmelsberger against Eros Medic, or do I go to the co-main event? And I think I'm going to go to the co-main event. And the fact of the matter is, even though I believe that Alex Bahia will be in a lot of trouble if Jan Blachowicz can get him down, I think that Bahia's footwork and speed, like, I don't... I don't think Jan's going to be able to take him down before he gets hit and hit hard. Um, I also think that Pejea, without the weight cut, is going to hit different. I mean, he's already hits really hard, but we've seen a middleweight knock out Jan Blachowicz before. And um, yeah, I love Jan Blachowicz. Yeah. I root for Jan Blachowicz. I would love for him. I, you know, I thought it would be great if he got another title run. Um just because he's a good guy, and I like rooting for him the same way I like rooting for Glover Teixeira. I also like Pejea. Um, but this is, you know, a, young, a younger guy, a faster guy. Um, could he be in trouble the way Adesanya was uh, when uh, when Blachowicz gets on top? Yes. I, I think that Pejea is just going to be more, a little more active than Adesanya was. And... Definitely more aggressive. I, and, and and I also think that, yes, Adesanya has kill shots, um, but everything Pejea throws is a kill shot. And I think Jan Blachowicz is going to need to move forward to bring this fight where he can win it. And as he's moving forward, he's going to get He's gonna get fucking clipped. <laughs> like I just, I I don't I I'll be very surprised. I, maybe I'm fucking wrong, and it'll be like he'll get, you know, he'll get choked out like a joke. And and but I I see this fight lasting about ninety seconds, and it's over over before you know it. Pehe just you know, like boom one two. Yeah, it's it, that's that's entirely possible. I mean, given Pehea and the way that people talk about him, even Sean Strickland was like, "Yeah, listen, I landed a bunch of shots on him, but every shot that he lands made my entire world quiver." Right? Like, th- there is something to the level of power that man has, natural and developed over the years, but. If we look at it, right, he beat Sean Strickland by knockout. Sean Strickland was just standing in front of him, openly taking shots. Sean Strickland's a pretty hittable guy. Although, to be fair, his stats don't make him seem hittable. But if you watch his fights, he, he can be hit, dude. Against an aggressive opponent especially. Bruno Silva, he'd be part of that. Andreas Michalaitis, part of that. In the Israel Asani matchup, in both those fights, he was clipped pretty badly, pretty hard. One time, he was clipped at the very end of the round, and that saved him from getting finished. That second fight, he was clipped, and he was finished. Yablohovich, I don't know if you've heard about uh, about this very important factor in this fight, Nick, and, and I'm, and I'm going to ask you about this, and you let me know. You be honest. Have you ever heard of um, a thing called Polish power? I have, and he hits really hard, but he's yeah. not but he's not that fast. Oh, yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right, and that's the thing. I think when it comes to kickboxing skill, they're significantly closer than their kickboxing resumes might suggest, right? Uh, I, th- I, I, think that, I think that there's... The, the the fact that the fact that you're right that that Blahovich was KO'd by Thiago Santos is concerning, but he was lunging forward, he was running into that left hook, he was fighting an extremely patient fight, two patient, both of them were, They're, neither of them were was willing to engage, and then he just ran into a, a left hook. He's yeah. also looked really bad his last two fights. Yeah, by guys who were taking him down. And you're right about that, but these are guys who are willing to take him down, standing. I up, mean, he looked he, he like, looked bad on the feet again. Oh, I forgot he beat. I forgot that he beat Rashik in that weird fight. But he looked right. he looked bad everywhere against Teixeira. Um, he they didn't really spend any time on the on the feet. Teixeira took him down decisively and easily both time in both yeah. rounds. 
So it never really got to, to maybe he was having a rough day on top of that. And I think Tashar still would have, because we know he has a big weakness. He can be taken down. He can be dominated yeah. from top, from top. And he's 40. For that. By and the way, this, this factor. Yeah. One other thing, this should, this should be for the vacant light heavyweight title. Absolutely. I don't know why it's not. It's, it's it's tricky to say that given given that uh, Yuri might be coming back soon, and the fact that Yan's last performance in a light heavyweight uh, title situation didn't exactly make anyone happy, and the fact that Yan was you know lo- like dominated largely in, in in a couple of those last three fights, like it's it's weird. And Alex Pereira coming up from a knockout loss. If Yuri's coming back this year, you could do the winner of this fight against him, sure. Yeah, that's true, and and I guess like it's still up in the air to some extent, but there's a chance that Yuri might, might be able to come back and. Three or so months. I don't think so, but there's a chance. It seems like. In any case, there there are other. Ankalaya probably deserved, you know, light heavyweight title matchup b- before Jan Blahovic. Given given the way that matchup went, the way that he, when he was winning, he was dominating, and when Blahovic was winning, it was relatively competitive. But here's the thing: I think Blahovic has a chance of getting a knockout. I think Blahovic there's a decent chance that he is as good of a kickboxer, if not better, than Alex Pereira. And I think Blahovic has the ground game. He's going to take him down. He's not stupid enough to stand with this man nonstop. He might be stupid enough to stand with him for a round or two, which might be all it takes, but I think he's going to get takedowns. And yes, he can be t- knocked out, but it's been years since he got knocked out by by Thiago uh, Santos. Um, I'm going to take Blahovic here because, dude, the ground game disparity is monumental, and the kickboxing disparity is very tight. And in the kickboxing realm, both guys can knock the other out. Alex Perez's chin is shaken. Granted, he's not cutting as much weight, and that helps him. But he was just knocked out a couple months ago. Literally knocked out cold a couple months ago, right? Like, took him a minute to, to wake up. Jan Blahovic, his chin is not shaky. He can be taken down and controlled. Alex Pro doesn't have that ability. So I'm, I'm believing in him at 205. Chin. I'm believing in the fact that he trains with Glover. That's fair. Who, yeah, who yeah. better? Who better to get you ready to fight Jan Blahovic than Glover Teixeira? Like, Very reasonable point. It's just he can't tell him, take him down and dominate from top position, take his back and choke him out, right? Like, no, he that's can't. not going to work. No, I know, but striking with Glover all day prepares you for striking with Jan Blahovic, in my opinion. I think Yan is a much, much better striker than Glover, and there's different dynamics. Really? But that's fair. Yeah, uh, I, I, okay. I, I do. I, th- I, th- I think Glover is effective, but I do think Yan is like, if Yan was age 35 with his current skill set, he would have been a top 10 kickboxer in, in whatever division he would make. Like, I think he's that good. Him versus Israel Adesanya, dude, it was absolutely tip for tat, super, super close. Could have gone either way for the first three rounds before he started getting, uh, before the first I'm rounds, calling it now. Jan Blahovich is going to go yeah. for one of those sick body kicks. And he's going to get he's going to get knocked down by a straight. Should we should we just make this interesting because this is a close fight on paper? It, odds are even. Should we make it? I don't know, like a dinner bet, a shoey bet, something like that. Maybe a sh- uh, maybe a shoey on on air. Nick, what do you think? I already owe you like I already owe you like three dinners. But yeah, let's. Through uh... <laughs> making yeah, a shoey. Oh, I don't know. I'm not doing a shoey. A, a drink um, of your choice, and you got to chug. It doesn't absolutely have to be from a boot, but you know, if you you have to chug a drink of your choice, whatever that may be, an alcoholic okay. beverage of your choice. Yes, you we'll in? do that. Yes, at the beginning of the next episode. Great, I'm I'm into it. Now. I'm that, in. that makes it a little bit more interesting. My next pick is going to be in the matchup between Matthew Semmelsberger and Uros Medic. Uh, Uros Medic is a dynamic offensive guy. He's just so unproven in MMA. Matthew Semmelsberger has been through some of the grinds. He's he's taken the losses in the UFC. He's learned some lessons from that. And given his last performance against Jake uh, Matthews, I got to take Matthew Semmelsberger. I think he's going to be smart enough to get takedowns, and he'll be effective with those takedowns. And standing up, I think he's going to be okay. He's hittable, but he he has serious power in his hands as well. He can hurt just about anybody in this division. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the the young veteran Matthew Semmelsberger over the less experienced guy in Uros Medic, who also looks promising. Yeah, I was gonna go I was gonna go with Semmelsberger with this as well. So good pick on you. Um, I, and then I'm gonna go, and we're gonna leave the main event for the very last pick. Um, 
I'm going to go with Carlos Vergara over Vicious Salvador. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's hard for me to be confident in this one. I'm going to go on the opposite side with Vinicius's power. Vergara's not very athletic, but he's a good pressure fighter. He's got a lot of heart. I'm going to go with Vinicius Salvador to potentially, you know, hurt him and finish him, if only for the sake of disagreeing with you here, bud. Oh, is that give, and that's giving you the main event pick, huh? That is giving me the main. Oh boy, event pick. I don't like how my, I don't like how this shaped up. All right, um, I'm 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 actually kind of into how this is shaping up so far. It's possible if Tony does something, you can you can make up those that seven and a half point deficit. Put a big chunk in it. I'm definitely going to Well, now be, that you I'd... said it, there's no chance. No chance, Nick. Now that you said Good. it. Good. You jinxed me and you knew it. All right. The main event is an exciting matchup on paper. It's a five-rounder between Dustin Poirier and Justin Gaethje. It's their second fight. It's their rematch. And the first fight lived up to the hype. It lived up to the expectations with everything you would expect these two men to be able to pull off against each other. And it really became a war of attrition, right, with... Dustin Poirier predominantly attacking the body against Justin Gaethje, who's known for having a nonstop gas tank, who's known for high output, and Justin Gaethje attacking the legs as he does. Obviously, both did plenty of damage to the brain on each other, but it did seem like Dustin Poirier was able to prolong his combos, um, and his leg, his his body shots seem to have made the biggest difference because at the end, it's not necessarily that Gaethje was completely out of it; it's that Gaethje was relatively tired. Now, there's a complication in this matchup, right? The fact that it's Salt in Salt Lake City, Utah, the fact that it's at about 7,000 square feet, give or take, and the fact that Justin Gaethje himself regularly trains at elevation, right? So this is not a foreign, foreign concept to him. Not only that, but he came out about a week and a half before the fight. He came out the Wednesday, pr- uh, the week prior to the fight, to Salt Lake City, Utah, to make sure that he adjusts on top of the fact that he regularly trains at elevation. Dustin Poirier, from what I understand, came in within maybe five or six days before the fight, right? So there's a little bit of a concern there. Obviously, Dustin Poirier is a veteran, and cardio has never been an issue for him. So we've basically got a matchup between leg kicks and and body shots, right? And I, on paper, I would wonder, will Justin Gaethje's leg kicks land against the southpaw? Because as an orthodox fighter, if you're throwing that right kick against the lead leg of your southpaw opponent, you're you're more likely to hit the shin, you're more likely to hit the knee because of the angle that the right leg of your opponent is standing at. But Justin Gaethje still landed plenty of leg kicks. He was still pretty effective. It didn't seem like Dustin Poirier was heavily affected by it. Like, you know, there were maybe hints of him not having full power on that leg, but it didn't seem like he was wobbled largely, right? Justin Gaethje landed 50 leg kicks. That is genuinely significant, right? Dustin Poirier only landed 21 body shots, and those body shots ended up setting up the finish and leading to the to the end there. And the first time they fought, Dustin Poirier was the tried-and-true veteran. He'd been in there with some of the very best in the world. He'd been in the UFC for a long period of time, whereas for Justin Gaethje, he was in his third UFC fight. He had fought a bunch of you know regional-level guys prior to his UFC debut, so he wasn't really used to this level of competition, really, right? So... Both were both are now weathered and damaged, right? Prior to that, they didn't they hadn't taken as much damage. Dustin Poirier had the experience edge at a high level, but both guys have taken a tremendous amount of damage. Both guys were gotten rid of by Charles Oliveira. And surprisingly enough, the jab for each guy was a factor in the fight, despite the fact that this is a Southpaw versus Orthodox matchup. That's not commonly what lands when it comes to uh, opposite-stance fighters, right? The jab is going to work when you're an orthodox fighter going up against an orthodox fighter. The jab is going to work when you are a southpaw fighter facing a southpaw fighter. It's less likely to land when you have an opposite-stance fighter because most fighters 
uh, aren't able to adjust to land their jab from this new angle against the southpaw or against an orthodox fighter if you're a southpaw. These guys were both able to do it, and it seemed like the jab was a factor in that fight as well. And I happen to think that Justin Gaethje's cleaned up his game probably a little bit more, whereas Dustin Poirier, he's legitimately gotten more craftier. And Justin Gaethje... You know, a lot of his style is still pretty similar. He's still having a hard time resisting the urge to get into a brawl when a brawl is being initiated. Part of my concerns for this is Dustin Poirier's performance against Michael Chandler. I don't think very much of Michael Chandler as an elite fighter. And I know he can have success early, right, before he starts to get tired. But the fact that Tony Ferguson was piecing up Michael Chandler and the fact that Dustin Poirier was kind of getting pieced up by Chandler, outside of those moments where he hurt Chandler, he was getting touched a lot. Justin Gaethje you know, also was getting touched by Chandler, but he was seemingly getting less affected by it. And that could be a factor. Dustin Poirier at this point in his career, is is he taking so much damage that this is going to be a big factor? Both of these guys are 34 years old, but we're talking about a pretty weathered 34. We're talking about 34 that has a tremendous amount of tread wear on him, right? Um, Dustin countering the leg kicks with his boxing combos was also a factor in the last fight. He knew those leg kicks were coming. He wasn't necessarily focused on defending them, but he was countering them effectively, which is not usually the case. It just seems like Justin Gaethje lands those leg kicks from punching range more often than not because they usually follow him throwing some hand combos. Um, Poirier's footwork and, and his angles were the key to kind of surviving, essentially exchanging bombs with Justin. If he had stood right in front of him, he would have taken more damage, and then that fight would have been closer to 50-50. But he was consistently in the lead, I thought, throughout that uh, three-and-a-half-round fight that they had. And it seemed like it's because he had the maturity and the footwork and cutting the angles um, in tow in a way that Justin didn't. Justin was a stand-in-front-of-you-and-exchange kind of guy. He's still that, but he has the capabilities of countering, of using his footwork, of cutting angles now, Justin does. And we didn't see that earlier in his career. Obviously, working with Trevor Whitman is going to do a lot for him, but this is the kind of guy that, again, he has a hard time resisting the urge to fight in a brawl. Here's the thing. Um, I'm having a hard time with this one. This absolutely could go either way, right? So many variables could make the difference. A variable in the fight could make a difference, like a le- an errant leg kick by Justin Gaethje that might hurt Gaethje's leg versus, uh, you know, might hurt Justin Poirier's leg in a particular way. Could be a calf kick, right, which was less of a factor when they fought five years ago. And so... It's very hard to be confident in this fight. Very hard to have a a strong take. Um, I think I'm going to edge with the guy that, even though I think Justin Cagey's ability to take punishment is a little bit diminished, and I think that maybe Dustin Poirier can take more punishment, I think I'm going to edge Gaethje for one main reason, and that is elevation. We've seen it become a factor at, at elite-level MMA, especially when a fighter brushes off the idea that they need to get in there early to adjust, especially when a fighter doesn't regularly train that elevation. Justin Gaethje not only trains at elevation, but he has been in Salt Lake City, Utah days more than Dustin Poirier. He's had the opportunity to adjust. I'm going to edge Dustin Poirier more for that reason than any other and again, very difficult to be confident. All else being the same, had they been fighting at sea level, I would have edged. I would have edged Dustin Poirier. But because this is at elevation, I'm gonna go with Justin Gaethje uh, to, to to take this second fight. And this very well could lead to a trilogy. This very well could lead to a fight against Islam Akhachev. I I happen to think that uh, that Dustin Poirier has the. Uh, both guys have the argument to to face uh, Islam Akhachev right next. It's just. 
a matter of Islam Makhachev beating Charles Oliveira, which is probably likely. And if Charles Oliveira wins that fight, then it's a hard argument. Then we're talking about a, a three-peat between Makhachev and Oliveira. So, again, a, a lot a lot to be figured out here. The, the BMF belt, um, do I think it means anything? No. I don't even know if it means the equivalent of an interim belt. In this case, it might mean exactly that, right? Where the rumor mill goes going around is saying that the winner of this fight might get the next title shot. I think Volkanovski has a decent shot of getting that next title shot. And I hope that's the way they go. But, the you know... Dana White's realistically going to go with what is going to favor the numbers, what's going to pull in more pay-per-view buys. And I'm not sure. I, I would guess that Justin uh, Dustin Poirier or Justin Gaethje will pull in more pay-per-view buys on paper than Volkanovski. But Volkanovski's kind of becoming a star. I think he's being truly recognized as the best fighter on planet Earth. And him facing off with the only good man to beat him uh, you know, in, in the UFC is going to garner some interest. So I'm hoping Volkanovski gets that shot before he's on the wrong end of 35 and uh, Justin Gaethje and Dustin Poirier both being 34, they still have a little bit of time to uh, to buy for that title. They can they probably need a lot more recovery time following this bout than uh, than Islam Mahachev will need following the Charles Oliveira bout. Uh, maybe even more recovery than Volkanovski will need, uh, you know, after surgery, uh, shoulder sh- surgery. Even though he didn't take a whole lot of damage in that Rodriguez matchup. I think Nick unfortunately disconnected. I'm going to go ahead and assume that Nick is disagreeing with me. I I, I figured he might pick Dustin, and and I'm going to find out, and you all will not know probably until the next time we record an episode. Thank you all so much for listening. It has been a good one. Looking forward to diving into this pay-per-view and watching it live.